Sorry, I've got a little bit of static. There we go. All right. So I, just like that, I am a fixer. All right? I like to fix things. I like to wrestle with problems. I like to figure things out. I'm not the type of person that just says, let's pay the guy. Carlin wishes I was the type of person that just paid for services. But I like to get in there and make it a one-day project last three weeks um, as I am learning about plumbing or electrical or foundational issues. I just, I like the tinkering. The problem is that I don't keep my fixing to myself. See, I like to fix myself and always trying to figure out what's a better, more efficient, better, you know, uh, self-help uh, kind of stuff. I, I love that sort of stuff. I also like to fix Cooper, okay? So, I, you know, little Cooper, not as much big Cooper, but, you know, more little Cooper. I like to fix him and make him better, and it feels like there's, if I change this input, then that output would change. It doesn't work with kids, but you wish it did. I like to fix Carlin, even though she needs very minimal fixing. I like to fix organizations. She came home the other day and she said, yeah, I bought Cooper a school shirt. It was $26 and $6 shipping. And I was like, what in the world? Why are we spending $32 on a shirt that's already swamping him? You know, like he has three shirts that say his school name. And I told her, I said, do I just need to join the PTO and go and just fix these problems for them? See, I am a fixer. I think I can fix most things, but the problem I have is that I try to fix things that are not mine to fix. At a conversation this week, maybe you're a part of this too. I see Mary shaking her head. Either she's like, yeah, Jordan, you're a fixer and you got a problem, or she's like, maybe I do this too. This week I was having a conversation with someone and I was talking about a relationship and I said, if they would just do this, if they would just follow my directions here, if they would just listen to me, their life would be objectively better. That person, Kevin Ray, then looked at me and said, it is not your job to fix them. You have no right to fix them. And guess what, Jordan? Just because they're not doing it how you do it doesn't mean they're broken. See, I fall into the trap of thinking that my way is best, that my plan will work, that my thinking is better than everybody else's, and if you will just follow my way, then life will be better. Objectively, I do think that is right, but we fall into the trap of trying to fix what is not ours to fix and do what was in our heart but not what is in theirs. Our text today is 2 Samuel chapter 7. David has this real zeal for God. And last week we read about him bringing the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God into Jerusalem. It was just staying in a village far away. But David has a desire not just to lead the people as their warrior, not just to lead the people as their king, not just to lead them in economic um, growth, but he wants to lead them spiritually. And so David brings the Ark and trying to encourage the worship of God. And, and honestly, under David's leadership, things are going really well. Israel has expanded their territorial space from 6,000 square miles to 60,000 square miles under David's leadership. 
Trade routes have been established, and economic success is happening in Israel. They are thriving as a country. David is growing in national recognition and worldwide recognition. He is probably seen as the most powerful leader of that day. Everything was good in Israel. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1 says this, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. And I know that's a comma, but we're going to pause there. The man that has been on the run for over half of his life, running for his life, is now able to rest. He's not just in a cave sleeping. He's not just at his father's house sleeping and resting. He's in the palace, and he's getting to stop. And he has time to think. And with fixers and doers and busy people, time to think can be dangerous because I just come up with a thousand ideas every single time I take a shower. And some of those ideas cost us money. We got a bunch of candle-making supplies because I took a shower one Saturday morning. We're about to buy a pasta maker because I took a shower one Saturday morning. I just get time to think and I can stop and... This is what happens. David has time to think, and David's thoughts go to God, and he goes, I, I want to continue to worship God and to lead our people to worship him. And so what does he say in verse 2? It says, And the king said to Nathan the prophet, this is a good friend of his, a godly man, a close confidant, he says, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the Lord dwells, the ark of the Lord God dwells in a tent. So what is David's idea? I need to build a temple. I've got a palace. God needs a home. He, he, he's sleeping outside while I sleep in these lofty uh, premises. I am protected and God is in the elements. I have this great home and he's just under a tent. I, I need to do something. That needs to change. This is a fine idea. It's a good idea. It's an idea that comes from his heart and his love for God. His confidant, his advisor, his godly friend, his prophet, in verse 3, what does he tell him? Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Okay, sounds all good on the surface. See, something has changed, though. See, David had started off being completely dependent on God. God, am I supposed to go up to Judah? God says, go up. Well, then where do you want me to go, God? Go to Hebron. Okay. See, David was dependent on God for everything. And now that David has become uh, the king and he is in the palace and he's having these great ideas and he has the lieutenants and the uh, commanders to pull off all of these things, David has an idea. And before bringing the idea to God, they just say, oh, go and do it. It sounds good. It even sounds godly. But what we will see is that David was stopped moving from depending on God to just started doing for God. And in verses 4 through 7, to paraphrase kind of quickly, God says, I don't need a house, and I didn't ask for a house. It wasn't a bad idea. But I don't need a house, I didn't ask for a house. David perceives that there is a problem for God, and he wants to fix it for God. But for God, it was not a problem that needed to be fixed, and David was not the person to fix the problem. 
God says, I've lived in a tent ever since we came out of Egypt, and I've been just fine, trust me. If I'd have wanted a a temple, I, I could have had that built in a heartbeat. David's not in trouble with God. God in 2 Chronicles says, it was good that it was in your heart. It just wasn't for you to do. There's a lot of things that I'm learning that are really good ideas that we can do as a church, but we need to figure out what God is leading us to do, not just what are good ideas that other people are doing. We read about this in Experiencing God not too long ago. One group was successful with a bus ministry, and how many different churches bought buses to go and try, well, their bus ministry works there. Let's go and build, let's go buy buses. It'll change our church. No, what is God calling us to do? David had a good idea, an idea that 40 years later would come to fruition. His son would actually build a temple for God, and it would be magnificent. But it wasn't for David to do. Our first application I want you to think about is, how do you respond when you don't get to do your ideas? How do you respond when you don't get your way? David had a good idea. There's nothing wrong. Objectively, it makes sense. And God says, no, 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 not yet. Can can you celebrate when when things go well for someone else and you don't necessarily reap the benefits of it? Can can you celebrate victories that you had no part in the fight? Can you celebrate when change occurs that you've been hoping for but you didn't lead it? Can you accept when God just says, hey, that's not for you? It's a good idea, fine idea. But it's not for you. Are you willing to listen and obey, or are you stubborn and say, no, 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 I'm going to make this happen. It needs to be done, God, I'm going to make it happen. From what we can understand is David waits. In a really interesting way, David, over the end of his life, will prepare all of the supplies for the temple to be built, but he won't build the temple. He's preparing for the next generation to succeed, but he's not the one doing it, and he's okay being in the background. Now, here's the meat of today's text, verses 8 through 16. We started in the first seven verses. David wants to do something for God, and God says, thank you, but it's not for you to do. And then he says, but David, I want to tell you what I'm about to do for you. I want to tell you something. And over these next nine verses, we have what is called the Davidic Covenant. A covenant is simply God's unconditional promises to a person or to a people. It is a, it is a binding contract of this is what I will do. And so God, with no, he had no bounds to have to do this. It's not because he knows the future and he knows what David is going to do. No, solely because God desires to make this relationship into, as the text says, cut a covenant with David to make these unconditional promises, displaying God's grace and his goodness, is this, does these words come to us. So in verse 8, God that night had spoken to Nathan in verses 4 through 7 and said, no, 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 y'all are not supposed to be building a temple. But it continued. Verse 8, he's still talking to Nathan here. He says this, Now therefore, thus you shall say, you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. I took you from the pasture, David, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and I cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name. 
like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Okay. So God, we're going to break these set of verses down. God starts with a reminder to David of how faithful he has been. God says in verse 8, he says, listen, I took you from the pasture. God says, I took you, the shepherd boy, overlooked by your father, and I made you the king or the prince at this point. I protected you against lions and bears, against giants and armies, against the elements and the king who was seeking to kill you. I have been with you the whole way. I have supported you the whole way. I have helped you the whole way. I have protected you the whole way. What I did when I promised to anoint you as king, as a teenager, has now been accomplished. Everything that I said to you has happened, David. Do you see it? And this is what is amazing. Is he says, but wait, David, there's more. David had received enough. He's the king. He's in a palace. He could live out the rest of his years, be happy, eat well, be comfortable. He was living in peace. There was no more enemies. Everything was good. And yet God still says, I've got more for you, David. And I want you guys to think of it Think about this. I need you guys to get the idea of that we have a God or we worship a God of more in your head. He can do more than you can imagine. He loves you more than you can fathom. He likes you more than you deserve. His grace is more than you can even comprehend. His ability is more than you can quantify. We don't worship a God who is limited by anything, by by time or by space or by location or by understanding or wisdom or ability. No. We've watched our God defeat thousands with hundreds. We've watched him defy nature, defy science, defy anatomy, uh, biology, chemistry, geography. Our God is the God of more. He's greater than we know, greater than we can imagine, greater than we can even think up. And so when we pray to our God, we are not praying to a God that is limited, that we're trying to negotiate what we can out of Him. No, we are praying to a God who can do everything, who is limitless, completely capable. And as we pray to a God of more, We stop having having to ask small asks. We stop having to limit our prayers. And then when we learn and when we read that our God can separate waters or raise the dead, heal the sick, confuse the proud, destroy nations, and that that same God of more than we could imagine desires you, loves you, and wants relationship with you, changes how we see our God. So David is then told, hey, I've got some more for you. You need to see and hear this. What does he say? He says, your name is going to be great. It echoes Genesis chapter 12, the promise to Abraham, 
when David, I mean, when Abraham had a covenant made with him. And, and your name is going to be great. You are going to be known. These first three sets are, are in David's lifetime. Secondly, Israel is going to have a place. They're going to have a land. They're going to have property. They're going to be a place to dwell and plant their lives. And third, you're going to have rest and peace. David, you're going to see this in your lifetime. And then there's even more than that. Starting in the second half of verse 11. Remember, David started this conversation wanting to build a house for God. 11b says this, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. God is not talking about a five-bedroom, three-bath that sits on some property with a lake in view of the uh, kitchen window. No. That'd be nice. But what God is talking about here is, I'm going to make you a dynasty. I'm going to establish your house and your throne that will go from generation to generation. I'm not just speaking about today, David. I want you to start thinking about forever. And so verses 12 through 16, what does he say? He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall establish or who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. There's definitely some of these promises that God is making that will go directly to the next um, uh, person on the throne in Solomon. Solomon will build a temple. Solomon will need the discipline of God where he errs and commits iniquity. But most of this passage, especially from the last half of 11 through the end of 16, is talking and pointing to a Messiah. It is talking about Jesus, the promised one that is from the line of David, who sits or who will be the Son of God, who will establish his throne forever and whose reign will never end. See, God is making in this passage promises only God can make. God is speaking into the future. But really, God is speaking into forever. And that just blows my mind that we have a God that can not only speak about what's going to happen tomorrow or years from now, but he can speak about what is going to be forever. And these promises are not made because David's such a great guy. No. Honestly, pretty much everything else we study about David is failure. God makes these promises to David because of his grace and his goodness. These are unconditional promises, irrevocable promises. These will happen. And you may say, especially in the occurrence of what's happened the last two weeks, but wait, there's not peace in Israel. There will be seasons of turmoil. There will be rebellion from God. There will be difficulties, but there will be everlasting peace for the people of God who Israel should represent. There will be final peace and rest in a new home for the people of God to live under the leadership of their eternal king. So God is making big promises. Here's what I want to end with. 
I want to end with the ramifications of these promises. The ramifications for David, the ramifications for uh, Israel, and the ramifications for us. So what are the ramifications? What, what do these promises mean for David? For David, it's more reason to worship. The God that has taken him from the shepherd boy to the palace now even knows that God is going to do through him and for him more than he could ever imagine. His name will be made great. He will have peace and he will have land and, and, and life will be good. David even says in verse 28 of chapter 7, O Lord God, you are good and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. David has more reason to worship and reason to hope. But really I want to look at the ramifications for Israel and then for us. Because most of these promises go past David's lifetime to the people that he is shepherding, to the people that God is leading as his nation. But before I can answer what are the ramifications for Israel, we have to ask these two questions. Because the, the promises are only experienced if we can answer these two questions. The first question is this. Is God real? Is God real? Is he really there in heaven, dwell, dwelling and able and mighty? Is he real? And the second is, is God true? See, everyone in Israel had to answer those questions, not just because they were born in this way or circumcised at this day. They had to answer for themselves, is God real and is he true? Because if he is real and if he is true, then everything that he has written, which they would only have this part, everything that he has written will happen. And we can believe in it and we can trust it and we can live with that. That no matter the circumstance, even if we're exiled, even if we're in despair, even if we're waiting, even if we're wondering, even if we're, uh, he feels quiet, even if we're being rebuked, we know what will happen in the end because God has determined it and said it. Determined it's a strong word. He has deemed this is how it will be. And honestly, God's only worth worshiping if he is real and if he is true. If he's not real and he's not true, then we should just chase after any pleasure we desire and live as we want because this life is the end anyways. But if he is real and if he is true, then we live under his lordship believing that he has our best in mind. So for the people of Israel who answered this question, yes, God, you are real. Yes, God, you are true. The ramifications of 2 Samuel chapter 7 are immense. It means that they have a hope for their future, no matter their present. It, it means that they have hope of a change, no matter the circumstance. It means that there is hope for help. It means that there is hope of one who will come and be like God, be a son of God. There's one that will rule rightly and justly for the good of his people. And this hope then gave them something to look to, even as they were marched to Babylon in exile. This is what gave the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego the ability to look at King Nebuchadnezzar and say, I don't care if you throw me in the fiery furnace because my hope is not in good in this life because my God is going to be victorious. This is what gave the people and, and the mother of God and the disciples, of, or the mother of Jesus and the disciples of Jesus hope that, yes, Roman oppression is miserable, but there's going to be that one that comes, the Messiah, that will change everything. 
Hope is what Israel watched for and waited for and wished for. The hope that the one from the line of David would come and establish his kingdom and change everything. Isaiah, 300 years after David wrote this, Isaiah says, For to us a child is born, a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He said, There will come forth one in Isaiah 11, uh, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. See, the people of Israel hoped in the truth of this passage, believed that it gave them promises that would happen. Because God is real and God is true. And hope was powerful. It's really the only thing that got them through many of situations. Because today may be terrible, but God is revealed tomorrow. Today may be awful, but God has told me of a tomorrow that is worth living for. So finally, what do these ramifications mean to people 3,000 years after the king hears them? And those same two questions apply to us. Is God real? And is God true? See, most people in Israel assumed that the Messiah would come and solve all of their nationalistic issues, push back the oppressive Rome, allow them to have their land and their nation again. But Jesus didn't come to establish a nation. Jesus came to establish a kingdom. And there's a huge difference. Jesus came to establish a kingdom from every tribe and every tongue, and that includes you and me. And what I love about you and me in this room is that includes a lot of different tribes and a lot of different tongues. And that's awesome. And so, if we say, yes, God is real, and yes, God is true, then we can hold tightly to every promise that He has made throughout Scripture. We can hope that Christ will return one day, and He will establish a kingdom that will be of peace and of rest, and that we will, it will be just and good, and it will endure forever. Because when God speaks, He can not only speak into the future, but He speaks into forever, and what He speaks happens. So what does that mean for us it means that when the Bible says you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that we are. It means that when it says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he raised from the dead, that you will be saved. It means that that promise is true. It means that when it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, guess what? No matter what we do, if our hope is in Christ, there is no condemnation for us. It means that nothing will separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 38, 39-ish. It, it means that we can live this life not dependent on how good I am at godliness, but I am completely dependent on what God has said that cross did for me and that that is my hope in every situation. But it also means more than that. It means that when God says, I'm with you, he's with you. It means that when God says, I will not forsake you, he will not forsake you. It means that when God says, I've overcome the world, guess what? He overcame the world. It means that when God says, I will give you rest, all who are weary and heavy laden, if you will come to me, that if we will come to him, he will give us rest from our weariness. It means that when God says, I have plans for you, that he does have plans for you. When he says, I am working for your good and for my glory, that God has our best at hand. So my question to you this morning is simple. Do you have hope 
better question, do you have hope in your God? Because all of us have hope. The problem is some of us hope in money, but do you have hope when the money runs out? When the market tanks? Do you, do you, some of us have hope in relationships, but, but do you have hope when a loved one is lost? When health declines? Some of us hope in our, our ability to create or produce or survive. And uh, What happens when a job gets ripped out from under you? Because if your hope is dependent on things of this world, Jesus tells us the moth and the rust will destroy it. But a hope in a God who is real and a God who is true will not be destroyed. It is a living hope that is undefiled, unperishable, and something else in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. So do you have hope in something beyond this, what this world can offer you? What's revealed in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is what God says will be. It's not a question of if God is right, it's when God is right. So what does hope do? Let me end with that right now. Some of you say, well, Jordan, great, you know, cool message on hope. You could have saved that for Advent, you know, there's like a hope Sunday. That would have made sense. But hope for many of us just feels theoretical, right? Oh, well, hope. Yeah, we should have hope and love and joy and all of these things. But here's what I want to tell you this morning with the last two minutes. Hope changes everything. You look at medical things, people that believe that they can be healed versus people who give up, it changes completely. Hope is powerful. But here's what I really believe. Hope changes how you live. Hope changes how you talk. Hope changes how you handle situations. Hope changes how you worry and what you worry about. Hope changes your life. Last year, I told a story. Carla and I had been dating for about two and a half years. It was 2008. We were going to Birmingham to go have dinner and just find something to do. That was about an hour outside of Tuscaloosa. We drove that, and, but before I picked Carlin up, she told me, hey, one of my favorite musical artists is having a concert in Birmingham. He's giving away a few tickets. I've already tweeted at him, and I think we're going to win these tickets. So, so I tweeted at him, and then remember, this is 2008, no smartphones. So we just drive, all right? We may have had a TomTom set up on our dashboard. We just drive to Birmingham and just assume that somehow we'll get word that we won the tickets. That night, we ate at a restaurant fairly close to the concert venue. That night, as we sat and talked, all that we talked about is how cool is this going to be to go to the concert. When we finished dinner, instead of going and doing something fun in a city that's more fun than where we were living, we decided just to kind of drive around the concert venue so that when he let us know that we won the tickets, that we would already be available and be ready and go get them. See, hope for those tickets changed everything that we did that evening. And then at about 7.15, 15 minutes after the concert had started, we realized we did not win the tickets, and hope crushed us. Frederick Nietzsche would say, hope is the worst of evils, for it prolongs the torments of men. And Nietzsche in that moment was correct. But... That evening has taught me more about hope than ever going to see a concert of somebody I didn't really care to see a concert of. Because it has shown me that hope is a powerful emotion. When you have hope, it changes how you live. Because you're preparing for what you think 
is going to happen. And what you are really better than think, believe and trust and know is going to happen. Hope was powerful that night. It changed everything that we did. It changed our schedule. It changed our outlook. It changed our conversation. It changed everything. All of our hopes and dreams were tied up in that. And Nietzsche's right. Hope in anything in this world is going to disappoint you. But Nietzsche's absolutely wrong about what if we place our hope in our God. Because our God is the only one who can speak into the future and speak into forever. Who every single promise he has ever made has come to fruition. And he has made promises bigger than we can imagine. And he is telling you, I promise that I will love you. That I've pursued you. That what Jesus did on that cross for you is enough that you cannot outrun my love, that I am always desiring you. And when you come to understand that and place your faith in that, you have a hope that is okay with whatever happens today because my God has tomorrow in his hands. See, we can be very overwhelmed by today, confused by today, fearful of today. But when we have hope, we trust in the God who is not afraid of today, who's not confused by today, who's not overwhelmed by today. A God that knows how forever is going to be, who has overcome the world, and he invites you to come and enjoy that with him. Let's pray together.